You're listening to On Mission with Dr. Matt Davis, a podcast designed to explore the personal mission of everyday leaders. Hear from men and women who are making a difference in their corner of the world and discover what keeps them on mission. Welcome to On Mission with Dr. Matt Davis. I'm Jonathan Sheely. Our guest today is Steve Burton, president of Equity One and member of Maranatha's Board of Trustees. Stephen and his wife, Annette, are in Chesapeake, Virginia. His passion is helping people find the best financial plan that fits their needs. His favorite meal is lasagna, and one of his hobbies is driving his red Corvette. His favorite sport team is the Duke basketball team. Steve, welcome to the podcast. I'm pleasure to be here. Well, I can certainly understand why a person would be a Duke basketball fan. Uh, that's not a hard, hard team to like unless you live in uh, Tar Heel country, I guess. But those two schools are right down the road from each other, aren't yeah. they? Not too much, but half of my family is Tar Heel fans. Oh, no. And then some of us are Duke fans, so it's uh, it's an interesting conversation sometimes. So I, I haven't followed it because we haven't had March Madness yet uh, at the time of our recording. And so how are they doing without Coach K? They started, it was kind of shaky. They're coming on strong. Duke is uh, one as of recording seven, seven, game, seven games in a row. Ooh. And uh, they're looking strong. And uh, their, their counterpart, the Tar Heels, are not looking so good. So, so Coach Shire is doing a pretty good job in his first year. It looks yeah. like they might even contend for a national championship. I mean, talk about the ultimate big shoes to fill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine? Like maybe whoever had to follow Dean Smith or whoever had to follow Coach wooden at UCLA. Yeah. Uh, I mean, who even knows? Like, I don't even know who followed them. But uh, man, to follow Coach K, that's pretty legendary. I can't even fathom the pressure that must be on somebody like that. It, Coach Irish seems to handle it well, and he was mentored by the best. And I think Coach K there in his final season let Coach Shire, now Coach Shire, do most of the recruiting and handle the team. And so uh, I think it was a, a pretty smooth transition. Probably a lesson there in succession planning that, mm -hmm. you know, somebody will write that book, you know, like yeah. next year they'll have a book out about how to do it. The well, he's Duke got way. a master class out already. Oh, well, of but course. It, but it's in coaching, not in succession Duke, planning. Who does? Coach, Coach K? K? Yeah. Yeah, he's doing. He's kind of been outspoken. I've actually seen mm -hmm. him quoted quite a bit, yeah. even kind of weighing in on some controversial things. Yeah. And because Coach Beheim, did you see that this week? Yes. The news came out about that he was going to retire from Syracuse, but then the university put out a statement that didn't use the word retire; just said <laughs> it was his final season, <laughs> and it was like. Uh, <laughs> he when you watched an interview with him, he wasn't sure he was retiring. He didn't say the words, but I think they retired him. I'm not sure. Well, he said something happened. about it would be up to the university, and I thought, oh man, a coach that yeah, that long tenured, you don't don't want to mess that up. Yeah. So you have a Corvette, and what color is your Corvette? It's only red. I can. I've been tempted to buy. I've had three Corvettes now. This one is a C8, the Ooh, most recent yeah. generation. I bought it. I've had it for three years. Had it built for me, so it's red. I can't get away from red. It's got to be red. If you got a sports car, it's got to be. It's got to be red. <laughs> yeah, but that, there's two things affected by that, right? The rate of getting pulled over and the insurance have got to be <laughs> like affected by the color red on a sports car. What you know? What I've ha had a speeding ticket, but was it but it was in an SUV and uh <laughs> heading home from Tennessee but uh but it's never I've never had a ticket in the in the Corvette for some unknown reason. All right. Well, I, you must yeah. behave. Yep. 
That's well, why I'll never have well. a Corvette. <laughs> You're not going to say that's the reason? No, I won't testify to that one Maybe it's the because other. they couldn't catch you. All right, that could be the reason. Uh, my uncle had a Corvette when I was growing up. He had one of those 70s Stingray Corvettes, the really old style, oh, yeah. cool, you know. And he let me drive it once. And so I got into it. And the first thing I noticed was how low to the ground it is. You feel like you're laying on the ground. That was right low, no yeah. doubt. And then uh, what the second thing you immediately notice when you push the gas pedal, some serious things start to happen. And I just had never been in yeah. a car like that that just had immediate power applied to the wheels like a Corvette. <laughs> and uh, so I can understand the obsession. And this one, they, they put the engine in the rear, so it's yeah, like a maybe, Porsche yeah. or whatever. And so mm. it's the fastest one I've ever had, and it's a whole lot of fun. And uh, it is in my spare time, it is my hobby, just driving the thing around. It's a, it, for me, it's, it's my getaway and forgetting about work and everything else. Absolutely. You you have to forget about it. You have to can't concentrate on not driving it off the road. <laughs> that too. Take care of your baby. Well, uh, we are dedicated here on the Odd Mission podcast to talking to people like yourself that have accomplished something in life and that have something to say and that young people could very much learn from. And I appreciate so much your service on our board of trustees and your your willingness to be generous with your time and your expertise and the discernment that God has given you. And so I'm hopeful that, you know, through this conversation, some of that will come out. You've spoken in uh, class for me in the past. Uh, a couple of years ago, I remember you were here for a board meeting and or something, and uh, God opened the door for you to come and speak to my students at that time. And it was, it was fascinating to see their responses, you know, to that to that scenario. But right off the bat here, we want to hit you with kind of a, a deep question to get the conversation rolling in the right direction. Yeah. So in all the shows, we ask uh, our guests, what is your mission in life? Well, that, that's interesting because uh, I was speaking about four years ago. I do a lot of dinner seminars to educate the public about retirement planning. And I was speaking, this was like five years ago, and, and somebody asked me specifically, what what is your specialty? And, and God just planted this seed in my spirit at the time. He goes, mission one million. And I said, and then I said, I'm on a mission to get a million people out of debt and educate them about how money works, not just about becoming rich, but how it actually works. Why do people not accumulate it? Why do people work hard for it, sacrifice for it? They'll rob and steal for it. And I just had a fascination about money. So I, I, I dropped into my spirit actually wrote a book called Mission One Million. And uh, I, in that book, I talk about most people could, if they just got educated a little bit, got out of credit card debt, car loans, and just reinvested that money. Some of that money, they could have an extra quarter million, half million, or million dollars or more. So my mission is to educate people about money, my, not to just accumulate it for myself. Uh, I, I struggled for many years myself, financially speaking. I found there's a lack of financial education. They teach us about math in public schools, they, uh, you know, math and all kinds of other things. I talk about how that dissecting of the frog has really paid off for me every day since I've <laughs> stepped out of school, but, but, yeah. But, but, yeah. but not really. But I never yeah. remember ever having any classes about money, and math and nope. money are not the same thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Opportunity, cost, compounded interest. So my mission is is what I can do to educate people about money because it 
fractures marriages, mm. ends relationships, mm. causes businesses to fail, and at least all kinds of other crazy stuff. So my mission is to educate people about money. And then, because I found out if they have money, they can tithe more, they can give to missions, and they can help out universities like here at Maranatha. Hey, I like that one. What, what is a top misconception that you hear people espouse when it comes to their finances? It is, you know, somebody asked me here on campus today, you know, how much I've only got $50 a month to invest. And this was a young person. You start where you're at. So misconception is I'll wait until I always have more, until I'll wait if I just can get this done. But, you know, really the misconception is, is that, you know, most people... I don't know if it's because of marketing, lack of education, or whatever it is, is that we have to have things now, right? Well, what I've found in observations and working with people, mentors of my own, is that wealthy people, people that go on to create wealth, typically learn to buy assets first, and they learn to respect their money. I tell them to respect every dollar because a spent dollar is gone forever. Invested dollar will live on. And uh, and so it's just basic things, common sense that, you know, after you hear them, you go, that makes too much sense. But why aren't people telling me this? I have people that roll up in, in nice vehicles yep. and they look good and smell good. Yep. And then you look at their in their profile mm-hmm. and they've got, I tell them, anytime you've got more money going to a car payment that you're investing for your own future, you're making somebody else wealthy. It's just not going to be you. Yeah. So, so and how much debt people will tolerate in order to look that way and roll that way. And, and and then the anxiety that comes along with being in, in that much debt. It does. And it, you know, it, uh, debt will allow you to live beyond your means, look good, smell good, you look rich. And uh, sometimes you are, but many cases you're just, it's just a show. And so, and then it brings the stress. It brings, and I've experienced that pain personally. I didn't understand it. So the empathy that I have for people, I, I, most of the financial advisors in my industry, if you don't have a quarter million, half million, million dollars or more, they don't even want to talk to you for whatever reason. God put it on my spirit that anybody was coachable, anybody's wanting to learn about money to teach them. And, uh, and I don't turn anybody away. I help them. And sometimes I tell people I've got to get them out of debt before they can get on the road to financial freedom. So, so many misconceptions. And I think um, I think that if schools would, I think from the time we're three years old or maybe even younger, we should be taught about money. We should be taught at least every year in the state of Virginia. Up until recently, they didn't have to take any classes on personal finance. Now I think they have to take one semester. Mm-hmm. Well, again, why aren't we taught about money? If money it has an impact on everything that we do. Hmm. From buying food, the place we live, to raising our family, to tithing to our church, or whatever it might be. If it has it, why aren't we being taught about it? So I can make my my analysis about the government and, and their lack of uh, wanting to educate us or whatever. But um, anyway, but I think it's very important. Well, somebody's getting wealthy off of the lack of education, and so I guess we could probably follow the money and maybe answer some it's of the true. conspiracy it theories. Is, it is 100% true, you know. <laughs> I look at it from, like, bankruptcy attorneys, you know, that when you when you study the the process of bankruptcy and and what it alleviates and what it doesn't, I think it's interesting that you know the government took over the student loan process and one of the first things you see is that student loans are not dischargeable in bankruptcy. <laughs> well, that's convenient, isn't it? <laughs> and, and, and grandma signing, co-signing for a student loan for a grandson, granddaughter. They'll come take your Social Security check, foreclose yeah. on your house. Yep. And or student loan debt tripled 
more than tripled over the last, what, 10, 12 years since they hijacked the student loan program. Yeah. When, when that happened, uh, the, the prices went up on higher education. When you infused more money into the system. The government guarantees it, right? The universities all just said, oh, good, you know, welcome to <laughs> expand their financial aid office and uh, raise the tuition. And, and at the end of the day, it didn't make college more affordable that there was more money injected into the system. Uh, of course, the government on the other side, what people don't understand on the college side is all the compliance requirements that require all of that bureaucracy and all that staffing that's not directly related to education. And that's kind of a shame because then that cost gets passed along to the students who are least equipped to afford it. So I see in a lack of education before they get the student loans. And then I see them come into me and I have to, you know, it takes sometimes decades to get them out, out from underneath the debt where they, if they had planned a little bit better up front, maybe, you know, chose a different path in some cases. And then I find parents that are carrying tens or even, hey, I'm getting ready to retire. I've got $75,000 in student loan debt. Sometimes it's on them. The parent, and I go, you're retiring and you're still carrying student loan debt? Wow. Or sometimes it's on their children that they loved, and, and, and so it is, it is a challenge out there as well. What's a better strategy for somebody who is in college? Is it possible to pay for college while you're in college? Is there any reason? I mean, you've started a bunch of businesses. Is there any reason why a college student couldn't start getting involved in that even before they graduate? I mean, planning ahead, if we wait till the last minute, many people wait till the last minute. It's hard to ask a 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old what they're going to do. So some cases, yeah. of course, the parents are involved in that from birth, and they set up 529 plans or yeah. set aside some money or grandma and granddaddy do. Yeah. But but in many cases, like everything else, if they're living paycheck to paycheck, it, it's it's hard to plan on that. So knowing and at least setting some basic you know monies aside for it to compound in effect over 18, 20 years. Uh, would have a great impact in, in, in keeping those expenses low. Uh, knowing, uh, I guess you know better than I do, if a kid can study hard, get some scholarship money lined mm-hmm. up, and uh, apprentice at a company that maybe could pick up some of the cost or all the cost, there's, there's a number of things that you know as well as I do. Yeah. And, I mean, obviously, uh, working an hourly job is, is, is important, and it, you can learn from it, and there's an industry there. But you've never really been a wage guy as much as, you know, let's look at ways to invest in, in businesses and, and finding a way to be more entrepreneurial uh, in, in the focus of things, too. I, I am an entrepreneur, and, uh, you know, I found that uh, we put our entrepreneurs, business owners, um, put their blood, sweat, and tears in businesses. And uh, it sometimes some of mine have failed early on and struggled for many years. Well, if I'd taken the safer route, the steady paycheck, um, you know, investing in a 401k, perhaps there was a pension out there. But uh, business owners, uh, you know, it's just in my blood. So this kind of, I was willing to take that risk and it finally paid off after years of, you know, struggle and uh, sacrifice or whatever. But uh, anyway, I'm a big believer in that. Well, how do, what, what is it about an entrepreneur? I mean, were all of your businesses the same type of business or give me an example of 
so something that that you experienced with that some of my early ones i had a commercial cleaning business uh, that i stumbled upon uh, a couple guys i hung out with in the late 70s uh, came across and and started cleaning some grocery store floors and and they, they picked up a contract they needed some help i started working part-time full-time they decided eventually to get out of the business so i stayed in that one and never loved that business uh, went on, finally made a success out of it after a number of years of struggling. I found a mentor that would teach me and, and anyway, made good money there. I've owned lawn doctor franchises. I've done, you know, I've, you know, done a number of things, network marketing. And it wasn't until about 2003, late 2003, I was introduced into the financial services business. And I, God had always put on me, I had a fascination about money. And uh, I like nice things myself, uh, you know, and so it wasn't about uh, just being rich myself. I had uh, my dad was a police officer and, and I, I don't know, I love police work for a long time. I thought I was going to be a police officer. My, I worked for the Secret Service field office in Norfolk in high school as an administrative aide. And they were grooming me to be a Secret Service agent. I very well could have went down that path. But I had this fascination about money and business. And so uh, I started, you know, uh, just learning about money, why, how it works, opportunity cost, um, you know. I, anyway, so I, that path right there about money uh, led me to be in this business. So I had many failures, and I was involved in many businesses that I really never loved. It was just a way to make money. And then I finally, finally, after wandering around in the desert for a number of years, many years, it wasn't until I was about 46 years old that I found the financial services business. Well, that's pretty interesting to, to, to find success with something you didn't start until that late in life. How did you become an expert? I mean, you got a radio show, you got probably thousands of clients that you've helped over the years, and obviously some success with that. You got a red Corvette. So, uh, what, how, how does a guy go from, you know, didn't, didn't study that in college or, you know, get the fancy pedigree degrees and yet now you've found success with it. What, how'd you do that? I spoke about it here on campus this week during the leadership conference, but anyway, mentoring, mm. I found out after struggling in my cleaning business for nine years, I found a gentleman that had picked up a contract to a food uh, grocery store chain called food line. You may or may yeah. not have heard mm. of them out this way, but anyway, and he picked up the contract and they were expanding rapidly. And, and I don't know why, but God put it on my spirit that this guy had, he had what I wanted. He had success, and I was tired of struggling. And I sought him out and uh, bugged him for about 30 days. And he finally, I said, I will work for free. If you'll teach me what you know, I will work for free. I'm serious. I'll go anywhere, fix any problem. And he mentored me. So I, and after just a six months' time, my, my income went up dramatically. And I learned the lesson that if I ever wanted to get into another business, then, then find somebody that was really good at it that their values lined up with mine and just learn from them. And so when I came into this business in late 2003, and really, really we launched it in April of 2004, and out of the gate because I had aligned myself with somebody that already blazed that path that was successful there, in just a short order, my income, I, I, I made more money in six months' time in that business than I did in the cleaning business in a year. Mm. And within two years' time, I was making about 10 times what I was making in the cleaning business. And so my, my answer to it is that uh, I, I'm still learning. I study more now than I ever studied when I was in school, and that's maybe not a good thing, but, but it is the thing I learned to align myself with people that are more successful in that industry or whatever it is, 
whatever I want to do. I, I have a, one of my mentors, his name is Don Blanton. Don Blanton is a good Christian guy, and he's created a software program called Circle of Wealth. And uh, Don talks about if, you know, if you wanted to be a golfer, would it be more important to have Tiger Woods clubs or his swing? Well, <laughs> you can give me Tiger Woods clubs, and I'm still going to, you know, slice it over into the sand trap somewhere. But if he was willing to teach me a little bit, even if I could never be as good as him, the, the, the amount of time to get better would be, you know, short and dramatically. So that mentorship is made. And I still have mentors all the time. I, I, I seek out the best and the brightest. Sometimes I watch them from afar. Sometimes it's on a podcast like this mm-hmm. that I'll never, ever meet them in person. But I glean one thing, maybe one thing that will tweak out and help my life better. But, but mentorship is, is really my schooling, my, my teaching my on and I believe you got to be growing all the time. Just because you graduate from college doesn't mean you stop learning. You got to yeah. learn all the time. One of the things that we really try to stress with our business students, but really in every field, is that that service learning opportunity beyond the classroom. You need a baseline of academic understanding, but you also need something practical to figure it out as to what how does it actually work. How, how do, what's my style? What's my enjoyment level? You know, how many students study something for three, four years and only to find out that I actually don't like this <laughs> in, when it, in the That's way that it actually, uh, that I thought I would. And maybe there's a related area that they find, but you're never going to find that out until you just get out there, put yourself out there and do it. There's a, there's a little hesitancy I sense in our students. A lot of times they're fearful to have that conversation, to approach someone successful like yourself, uh, because maybe they fear, uh, well, certainly the unknown, but maybe they're afraid that, you know, you're going to snap at them or bite their head off. Maybe, maybe, uh, pull the mask off a little bit and, and help them understand what that's like for you when someone approaches you for help or mentorship like that? There may be some leaders that are like that. I find most of the leaders that are open-minded and willing to share ideas and thoughts. And, 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 and I've had it here on campus after speaking. People have come up, and I've had lunch with one of them thinking about going into it. He wants to start his own accounting firm. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, and I had a good long conversations about that, acquiring things. But being fearful, you know, all I can say is, it, well, one, uh, and somebody asked me this in this session too, uh, you know, how do you find, what if a mentor says no? I say next, find somebody else. There's, and it's not as, uh, there's so much information out there with podcasts and social media posting and blogs and all that. You can mentor from a whole lot of people. I, I tell the story when I first got started in my business, I, uh, I wanted to start selling annuities. And annuities are a, a big business and uh, for pre-retirees, retirees. And there was a lady um, that I heard about from this organization, and she was in Texas. And I just asked the company I was w- uh, working with, who's the most successful person on your team and where's she at? And she happened to do a radio show in Texas. Well, I wasn't going to fly from Virginia to Texas and try to get up with her. So I, every Sunday after church, she had a radio show like mine, and pretty much what she said on her show the prior week, I repeated, paired it the next week on my show. So my point is, <laughs> I met her years later at, at a conference that um, she was number one in the company, and then uh, I was on the same stage and in that same group of people. And I told her, I said, you don't know me. 
but you've been a mentor of mine for a couple of years now. And so, so there's so many opportunities. So if somebody tells you no in person, it's not like in old days where you can't yeah. pick up a book, listen to a, a, you know, some kind of audio recording of some type. And uh, anyway, but hey, don't be afraid. If they tell you no, just go on and think, I always say next, you know, I'll find somebody that will. What are some questions that you think young people ought to be asking that you don't hear them asking enough? You know, it's about, again, it's going back to, there's a number of things. First off, you're, you know, getting into education would jumpstart you and put you in front of the line as far as earning potential over life, but get started first. And they they really, you've got to start, save 15% of your pre-tax earnings, save 15%. Well, I can't live on that. Then go work a little bit more. So they don't understand about investing S&P 500, Warren Buffett says, most investors, if they just invested in an index fund attached to the S&P 500, I might say the NASDAQ 100 would be another option. So they have, uh, you know, they don't understand about investing. Get started early. It doesn't matter. Just get started, right? You got to get started. And then when it comes to their career, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're not sure uh, of what path they're going to go on. And uh, like you said, I, I bump into many people, get a degree in this and end up doing that. It's, you know, people at ch- the end of the world. No, people yeah. are changing jobs. It used to be if you come out of school back in the day, you went to work for an IBM or whoever it might be. And you stayed there for thir- 25 or 30 years because they had a pension gold watch. There's no pensions in the private sector that I'm aware of anymore, not in new hires. And so so now people are more mobile mm-hmm. and changing changing up. Why get stuck in something that you're not comfortable with? Find your passion. Find something that motivates you to get out of bed. Find somebody that you can have a mission and part of. And uh, and anyway, it'll excite you. So so just get started and, and, and keep looking until you find that thing that motivates you. So mission 1 million gets you out of bed it's what motivates you what what is it that brings you the most satisfaction out of that i don't sense that it's the financial rewards of it necessarily although you know we need to make enough money to provide for our needs and provide for our family but beyond that you you are experiencing sort of an intangible benefit or blessing from that what is it about that process that really lights the fire for you you know what it's i don't know it must be something that god's put in my spirit or something uh lady recently i've taught hundreds of thousands of people on my radio shows and and on money school i have a uh it's not really a podcast podcast i guess it is but it's audio recorded i call it you know money school started about 13 years ago and one of my clients recently she's uh she was divorced when i met her and she retired from a company she had a pension she was 53 when she retired from that. She went into nursing. Then she went into uh, working as a paralegal. And I talked to her recently and she's 67 years old. And I asked her, I said, how come you haven't, uh, have you started claiming social security yet? And she goes, no. I said, tell me about your prior marriage. I know you're not married now. Tell me, because I I don't know why it hadn't ever occurred to me. And she thought, kind of looked at me kind of weird. And I said, you know, why do you want to know about my prior spouse? Because I'm trying to get you some money from Social Security. I said, one, is he still living? No, and he died uh, recently. I said, okay. I said, well, you're entitled to a divorce survivor benefit. She goes, what's that? She goes, he's remarried. 
And uh, uh, I said, it's irrelevant. I know a lot about Social Security. I said, call Social Security, get your marriage certificate, divorce decree, make it easy on them, and you're going to get a benefit. You're going to get his benefit, his full benefit, Hmm. whatever that might be. And if at age 70, his is larger than yours, keep claiming his. But if not, if your own benefit is deferred and bigger now, claim that. So my point to your question, long-winded answer to your question. (laughs) Specific. (laughs) It's... It, I get as much excitement of finding pe- finding money that people don't know that they're entitled to, and and that gives me as much pleasure as a person walking in the door with a million-dollar portfolio. I make more money on the person with a million-dollar portfolio, but I don't know what it is. Uh, you know, getting people out of debt, why do I care? Why do I have a passion about getting people out of debt, that empathy of that pain and, and all that that mm-hmm. I went through? when I was younger and knowing living beyond my means. And I guess that's why I have a compassion. So it seems like when you find that thing that God designed you to do, then you're good at it. So there's a inherent or intrinsic reward uh, built into the, to the success of, of being able to find a solution for somebody but lawyers are the same way in, in a bit. I mean, I don't make money for people and the client necessarily. It's not my goal. But they walk in with a problem that for them is very insurmountable. I mean, you're talking about people who have not enough money coming in to live on or to meet their goals. And so then you're kind of adopting their problem and making it your problem. And then helping them to find a solution is a very satisfying kind of career. It's a kind of, it's a kind of lifestyle uh, to be able to, to come alongside, but it takes a certain amount of empathy to be able to truly put yourself into the shoes of somebody else and, and make their problem your problem. My dad, I mentioned my dad was a police officer, thought I was going to do that. I, I kind of equate this. Every client is different and it's kind of like a financial puzzle, financial mystery. How do I piece this together? Some people, sometimes they got the whole, they've got the money, but it's still, sometimes that creates tax problems and other things. And other times, like you said, they don't have enough money. So it's interesting to me uh, of how to piece together this puzzle with things that I know that some people don't know or don't care about or it's not profitable for them to help people out. I, I'm 66 years old. I'll be 67 next month. And people ask me for whatever reason. I don't know if it's an insult or whatever. When are you going to retire? When are you going to retire? <laughs> when am I going to retire to? I enjoy what I do. I take more vacations than I used to. I, I, I enjoy my time off. But I had a doctor, a client of mine, he works at the VA. He's 83 years old. And, he, and I asked him all the time, I said, Doc, when, and he's got money. I said, well, when are you going to retire, Steve? Retirement will rot your brain and your body and uh, anything else so he doesn't have. I said, figure if it's good enough for the doc, I'll keep on working for him. <laughs> well, as long as he's uh, practicing well, all right? That's the other That's side true. of That's things. true, too. We do have to acknowledge that, you know, there is a there is a temporal aspect to our lives and you know, it's a humbling thing. We don't get to do this forever. And it's a constant reminder that only, only our soul is eternal. And yet the things that we do with the few days that we have, they do matter for eternity. And it's interesting in, you know, being around this campus and taking part in whatever with the board of trustees and the growth I've seen here. Then I hear a story. I heard a story from your wife recently about a, a student 
following the online, taking an online class from here at Maranatha, and I think she said Thailand. I'm yes. not. Sh- I'm not exactly sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember. I remember us getting the online classes started about ten years ago, and I thought, you know, I had a little part. Yeah. A little part. And somebody that I will never meet, yep. but how God brings people together and how you have that ripple uh, effect, impact in somebody's life worldwide. And you guys are doing that here, of course, in whatever little part I can do in my own little, in my own community or whatever. And then I work with people all across the country. But the reason I keep coming back here is because I see the impact of what you guys are doing in, in whatever little bit I can I can do to ha- have a from, help from, there. From the standpoint of philanthropy, which is the secular way to say it, or stewardship, which is more of a, a biblical term, there's a an entrustment and a responsibility, but also then a burden that comes with that. And I don't think a lot of people understand that burden that comes with having uh, abundant resources. Uh, some people use the term wealth. Some people talk about it a little bit differently as an abundance. And I like to use the word abundance because I think every one of us has an abundance of some resource. And, you know, whether you're a college student, you say, well, it's not in my checkbook quite yet. I know, but you have an abundance of energy and enthusiasm and passion and ideas and time, perhaps. Although most college students don't don't think they have an abundance of time. That's just because they've already invested it. They've already made some choices that have, have uh, consequences. And we have time to do the things that we, we want to do. And all of us have some sort of abundance, and we have to invest that uh, in something that matters. And I think those of us that maybe don't have an, a super wealthy portfolio sometimes look at people that do and think that that, that life is easier. I don't think it's easier at all. Sometimes it's more complicated and more difficult, and it brings yeah. other problems. I've can you, seen. Can I've you seen speak that, to that a little bit? You know, I I see it occasionally. Whatever when people, you know, money money does can do a lot of good things. It can absolutely mess somebody up as well. I've seen people inherit money from the family that didn't have it laid out, hadn't taught their kids well, and I've seen them blow through millions of dollars in a blink of an eye. I've seen it lead to destruction, drug problems, alcohol problems, and but so it can create a, it can create a burden. I've seen fractures. I've seen families as close as close can be and mom and dad die and leave them some money and now they're divided and they're fighting and so it can uh, be used for good or evil and uh, anyway and so uh, it, it's definitely it's definitely something that uh, you know I, I like it when if mom and dad have got money or aunt and uncle or whoever it might be I like it for them to set it up in a trust and have their will spelled out and here's how it's going to work mm-hmm. and uh, you know you're going to get this this and this and, and uh, they still sometimes I've seen them be close and go to jail, get in fights, go to court. It's just crazy. Or in most cases, it can enhance their life and yeah. make it better. So I've, I see both sides of it. It, it certainly, they say money doesn't solve problems. I disagree. Money can solve a lot of problems. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the... Lack of money doesn't solve any problems either that I can think of, right? Uh, yeah. And, you know, we, we certainly understand that with uh, the way the economy works, uh, money is an exchange of, of value that, that allows you to have some some choices that you just don't have without it. And so there, there's there's an ability there 
And that's what I'm trying to get at is that there's a responsibility. And whether we're talking about estate planning where that responsibility is to pass that resource along to another faithful steward, and the hope should be that you have throughout your lifetime prepared your heirs to be faithful stewards, but perhaps God didn't bless you with heirs. Perhaps God didn't give you, uh, or, or you realized that that money would be destructive uh, in the life of your, your uh, blood relatives. Is there something that God would lay on their heart to, to promote and uh, do something eternal with that resource? There's a, there's a biblical concept of converting temporal cash into eternal reward by investing it in something that matters. Right. And I've seen you do that here on this campus with very strategic, intentional investments. Uh, and, and I don't, I don't like the word donation, uh, you know, that sort of I, I don't think of it like that. Yeah. I, I, if it's laid on my heart, it's it's not a donation. I go, let's get, I, I'm a guy, a taskman. I, I like getting things done. If there's something, opportunity and something needs to be done, let's do it. Yeah. If I can help, be any part of it, but but uh, I agree. So I, I was in India recently where there's lots of opportunities, uh, both ministry and, and otherwise. And we were on this campus, of the, this Christian college, and uh, I saw so many parallels with the Maranatha students. You know, they're just... They're, they're different culture, different languages, same thing. Same College students are, are the best. And we were having so much fun. And they have three sources of electricity on the campus, and not one of them is reliable. <laughs> and so one of the days we were there, the electricity was out. And the problem you don't think about is that their water is all from a well. If they don't have electricity, they, don't, they also don't have water. Mm. And it's a it's a basically in an equatorial climate and uh, without water, you got big problems. And so while we were there, I said, you know, if, would there be some time, maybe this afternoon we could go into town. Is there somebody that like a generator dealership, you know, you guys need something that could be a backup for this mm -hmm. power supply, this very foreseeable, realistic risk. So we went downtown and I had some friends I knew I could call that would be all over a project like this. And you know, the, I, I didn't quite understand the, the conversion process to rupees. I mean, it's like 72 to 1, and that's that's difficult math for me to do in my head. <laughs> Somebody and, got a calculator. And this guy yeah. is talking a mile a minute, and his, he's speaking English like I was told he was speaking English, yeah. but I didn't yeah. understand much of it. And it's going back and forth. And so finally, uh, my Indian brother uh, says to me, okay, I think it's going to be about 7,000. And I'm like, 7,000 bucks? And it was a standalone, a freestanding unit that could power the entire campus. Hmm. And I said, well, when when could they deliver it out? Well, today's Tuesday. They could have it out by Thursday if we pour the concrete tomorrow. <laughs> I said, all right, I think, I, can, I think we can do that. Now, that wasn't my money, right? I'm just making connections with people. But by the time I got home from India, they had reliable power on that Christian college That's campus. Awesome. It was a little bit of a taste of what you're talking about there, to be able to advance something and then to think. And now I've seen uh, other projects accomplish like mattresses for their beds. They mm. were sleeping on stainless steel bunk beds, mm. right, with no mattress or and no blankets. Mm. And I'm thinking, I wonder if we'd get any, you know, 
negative comments on the surveys if we tried to pull something like that over here, you know, bring your own bedding. Uh, and, and so we, I said, well, how much would it cost to get mattresses? You know, just uh, observing, being willing, recognizing mm. where there might be some opportunities, and then just suggesting, you know, hey, how could we move the move the bar ahead a little bit? And then you forget about those little things, that generator that you purchase, you know, the clean drinking or drinking water in general, yeah. and how many people's lives that had an impact. Mm-hmm. And they're just on the campus itself. So yeah. you, you think about it, you think about it, you're motivated, then you forget about it, and then you have a reminder of it. And yeah. so it's... Um, and we don't take credit for it, but we, but no. it's amazing when God lets us be a part of something that he's doing. It makes me smile. I mean, I'm, it makes me happy to even yeah. think about that, you know, not only here locally, back in Virginia where I'm from, but, you know, now you're having an impact worldwide. So that's, yeah. that's too cool. So this, this summer, I'm going to Kyrgyzstan. Oh, yeah. Some people call it Kyrgyzstan. All right. I'm not really honestly sure what the the right pronunciation is. And people are always like, where is that? <laughs> you know, well, we had a student from Kyrgyzstan. Wow. And uh, LDR was a business student. And mm-hmm. I did my best to try and help him through and, and talk to him from time to time and, and uh, counsel him. And, but he has a real burden for his, uh, his village, for his, his church his family. And so he has been on my case ever since he graduated, really before. You got to come, you got to come, you got to bring a team. So we're going to do it. We're going to take a team there uh, this summer. It's going to be a wild adventure. But just to kind of see, even in the the guys on our, our team that are going over, this, the way it stretches their faith to commit to do it and then to have to go and raise money right. for that travel and say, okay, uh, we've got, we've got to see $3,000 come in or 2500 which seems like a pretty insurmountable amount of money when you're a college student, right? right. But uh, you, you just teach them, okay, step out on faith and see what the Lord's going to do. Right. And you see that money come in, and then you see the Lord's work advanced. And then you don't even understand all the impact that it has moving forward for for uh, you know maybe years to come. So it, that's I don't know. It, I don't think about it often, but then you know you sit back and you think about you'll you'll have a remembrance of that that trip one of these days, five ten years down the road, and all of a sudden and and until we get to heaven, you won't even know the true impact oh, no of the way. whole thing. Yeah, you you never do, but. The the big thing it really puts in your mind is that what God is doing is so much bigger than what we see. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that this world is obsessed with money and it's obsessed with, with wealth and outward success for the sake of whatever fleshly you know desires that people have. And so it does have a corrupting influence as well, but it has so much power for God to use it to advance his work if we'll just recognize that that that's one of the reasons why he gave it to us. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It took me a long time to realize that, actually. Yeah. Well, one thing that's interesting is the Bible uses the term abundance. And I, I feel like in our society, we raise our standard of living with our income level. And so throughout life, we see people rising in their income level and still then just living at the extreme of their financial ability. How do you counsel people in that circumstance to, to be more focused on saving, preparing for the future, and even in, in charitable giving or, or philanthropy or investment, partnership with the Lord's work, uh, and, and those kinds of things that maybe 
you won't ever be able to do unless you restrain yourself and exercise that kind of self-control in your, in your That's consumption. My, that was my prop back in the eighties when uh, Nat and I first got married. I was the entrepreneur. She was a banker. She was the one that was steady paycheck. I was the one out here. I would make good money and then go backwards. And every time I made more money, I thought that was the answer to my financial problems of debt. Hmm. Well, more money came in. I would go out and buy some more toys and new cars. And uh, and so I thought it was the answer was always more income. And then I found out after time it wasn't because then I saw professional athletes having making millions, tens of millions, in some cases now hundreds of millions. And within a few years of their paychecks, big paychecks going away, they ended up bankrupt. So I do it through education on my radio shows, on my money schools and through uh, individual meetings. And I just try to tell them. And I see if I see opportunities and they've got too much debt, we have a software program that we help people rapidly get out of debt, in many cases paying off all their debt and even their mortgage in five to seven years. Wow. And uh, anyway, and the key to creating whatever wealth is to you, it's different for everybody, right? Sometimes it's just having a, a good life, being able to tie to the church and you know live and give like they want to. And other times they want to become, they want to become a millionaire. But being a millionaire is not you know everything it's cracked up to be. You can be just as miserable with, with many commas in your bank account. But uh, anyway, uh, it's just uh, it's education and it's just uh, uh, ongoing nonstop because even if you teach a large group of them, there's one right behind them. Uh, Sometimes people my parents never, never carried any credit card debt, car loans. It was never anything they did. I didn't learn that. I didn't get that memo. (laughs) (laughs) I I live beyond my means uh, for many times. Uh, Fortunately, I think my, my kids have a little bit. I've come to a point now where they, they see and uh, respect money a little bit uh, better. They started saving earlier. Well, you got to be that. patient. You see young married couples, and and they want to start out life at the standard of living that their parents achieved after being married for twenty five years. And it, it's absolutely true. So the the challenge with my own sons after having achieved things and the big house and a nice uh, more than one car and by the way more than just a Corvette but they see it and we go on nice vacations and they see all that stuff and you know but uh, they're solid down to earth and they've learned that lesson I don't know if I'm hearing from me and, and me talking about it so they live within their means and uh, and they do a good job so sometimes we can have a good mentor at home and still fall off the rails like I did in other cases and the challenge is again back to it is that if many people millions Millions of Americans are struggling living paycheck to paycheck, whether they're making 50 grand a year or 500,000 a year, they're sometimes living paycheck to paycheck. Hmm. If you have a bad role model in, in the family and they're always struggling, then either you're going to learn from that and not want to experience that pain, or you're going to be the same, you know, that's your role model. And so it comes through education. And again, I wish the public schools would teach more about finance. Yeah. So if you got a college student who's listening, what's your kind of go-to piece of advice for them to set themselves on the best path forward from this point at this really critical point in life as they get ready to make some pretty pretty important decisions? Whether, whether you're going to make a big income in your 
the thing that's going to have the passion that motivates you to go to work. Whether you're going to make a modest income or a large income is live within your means, of course. It's not that complicated. The formula says if you live beyond your means, you will struggle. You'll be stressed out financially. It could hurt your relationship with your spouse, your feed down to your children, even lead to bad things. So always save at least 15%. If you don't have cash, you don't need it. Right. I make exceptions like on houses, you know, if if we had to wait until we saved up hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy our first house. But other things, if you don't have cash, don't get it. Uh, something else, um, I use the example of Coles. When Adam, my youngest, used to go here uh, before he graduated from Maranatha in 2014, we used to run down to Coles here all the time, mm-hmm. pick him up some things. He needed this, that. And Coles is very good at marketing. Hey, you spent $100, but you saved $100. Yeah, you saved $300. <laughs> I didn't save anything. If I had not had spent the $100, I could have invested the $100. Yeah. It really cost me two or $300 coming through. And, it, and the cashier just gets a glazed look on their face like, like, uh, you're weird. But yeah. live within your means, uh, save early and often, S&P 500 index fund, and uh, anyway, uh, live within your means and uh, you'll build wealth. I love it. Thank you so much for investing your time with us today. It's very valuable. And this has been a valuable conversation for sure. I hope that those listening will take this to heart. And if you're in that hole, use these tools to get out and get back on the path to uh, financial stability, yes, but all those other good life outcomes that come from exercising good stewardship with the resources that God blesses us with. No doubt. All right. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you for joining us today. On Mission is a production of Maranatha Baptist University. Subscribe to On Mission on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review as this will help other growing leaders find these conversations. For information about our guests, previous episodes, and general information about On Mission or MBU, go to mbu.edu slash podcast. Join us again next week as we examine what keeps leaders on mission.